Go ahead and grab a seat. And if you've got a Bible, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to finish Hebrews 2 this morning, so it'll be the last five verses, 14 through 18. And as you get situated, um, I want you to think back with me, maybe to maybe a time you were a teenager or younger than that, and uh, you're at the swimming pool with like a group of friends or with your siblings or whatever the case might be, and everybody's having a great time, you're just kind of goofing around, and then things become like a little bit more physical, and now we're dunking each other, because that's the natural progression of things. And then the moment arrives where uh, you're being dunked, and the fun becomes not fun when Your body does that real quick shift over from this is all fun and games to I can't breathe and I'm going to die in the next five seconds. And you start, you know, you're you're like, at that point you're swatting at the hands or whatever is pushing you down and you're kicking your legs trying to just get the person off of you or away from you and then you come up above water and you do that big like (gasps) and you get as much air in as you can there. Those feelings, that feeling of being held down underwater and it's like you can't, you know you can't breathe, but also you want air so badly, but you know that if you tried to take anything in, water would be what fills your lungs. And then the corresponding feeling of finally getting yourself up above the water in the, you know, like the sweet relief of oxygen. Those two feelings, the panicky sort of crushed feeling underwater, and the relief feeling when you finally get air. Those two feelings are things that uh, I hope we feel this morning, not because I'm going to dunk you underwater, but because what Hebrews 2, 14 to 18 does is it paints this picture for us of Jesus as this helper that we have. But in order to really treasure the fact that he's helper, we have to be pretty honest and feel our own need for help. If you were here last week, Jesus, or not, well, Jesus kind of threw this Bible, but it was Joe that said it. Um, Joe talked about three different kinds of suffering, and one of those types of suffering is natural suffering. Just the things that we experience because we live in a broken world. There's grief, sorrow, stress, illness, ultimately death, and that's what our passage is going to talk about today. Those are things that we don't just know about. It's not that we know those exist kind of intellectually detached from ourselves. We feel them. Depending on the season of life that you're in right now, you might feel some of those realities every single day, and it's like you are being shoved down underwater, and you can't breathe, and you're just thrashing around trying to find the relief. We feel that. Jesus offers us something right in the middle of it. And what he offers us is himself. Not in some intellectual way, not in some cold, distant, theological sort of way. He offers himself in a tangible, merciful, faithful, capable way. He not only wants to ease the weight of what might feel like it's holding you underwater, he wants to bring you back to the surface so that you can breathe. We need to know that 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 exists out there. But more importantly, we need to feel it. We need 
to feel the reality of our suffering and the way it presses in around us. And we need to feel that Jesus is better, greater, and more superior to anything else and that he's the only thing that can ultimately offer us help. And we need to be willing to do whatever is necessary in order to take hold of that. That's what we're going to see this morning in these verses. Jesus is a merciful liberator. He's a faithful priest, and he's a capable helper. We don't do this very often here, um, maybe like one time a year, uh, but just to change things up, would you stand, if you're able, would you stand while we read these five verses? Hebrews 2, starting in verse 14, says this, Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, for the chance to gather together as a church body. God, thank you for your word, for your son. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here and be present among us this morning. God, would you help us to be honest about and to feel the reality of our own need? God, sometimes we can be so absorbed by that. We can just be so kind of surrounded by it that we become numb to it or unaware of it. Or we begin to use lesser things in order to just kind of soothe the pain. God, this morning, would you help us to feel that? And more importantly, would your Holy Spirit help us to feel the reality that Jesus can help us in the midst of that? God, I pray this morning that there would be people who are set free from the one holding the power of death. God, for the very first time. Lord, I pray that there would be people here this morning who are set free from the chains of sin. God, I pray that there would be people here this morning who experience your help in their grief, in their stress, in the suffering that they feel. God, would your Holy Spirit turn our hearts to Jesus so that those things would be reality, we pray in his matchless name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. This uh, small section here, and really verse 17, is what the book of Hebrews kind of hinges on. It's the hinge that the whole book swings back and forth on. And so Hebrews 1.1 all the way down to 2.16 serves as this kind of long introduction and then in verse 17, the author of Hebrews gives us what is kind of the thesis or the controlling statement for the rest of the book. And it's this, therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could be a merciful and high priest in matters pertaining to God and to make atonement for the sins of the people. That is what the rest of the book of Hebrews is going to kind of fill out for us. What does it mean that he's a faithful 
high priest? What does it mean exactly that he's like us in every way? What does it mean that our sins have been atoned for? Chapters 3 through 11 in Hebrews are going to fill that in, and then 12 and 13 are kind of practical application for that. But it starts with this idea of Jesus as this merciful liberator who has freed us from something. And so what I want to begin with this morning is, what is mercy even? I think we think of mercy and we kind of mix it with compassion, maybe, or sympathy. Maybe we would say mercy and grace are pretty much the same thing. Mercy is more than a feeling we have toward something. We see someone suffering. We see someone in pain. It's not merciful to just think sympathetic thoughts on their behalf. That's not a bad thing to do, but it's not mercy. It's not mercy to just kind of be sad along with them. Mercy is more than a sentiment. Mercy stimulates action. Let me give you two biblical examples of that. You don't need to flip. I'll just explain them. The first one that I want to use is from Exodus chapters 2 and 3. Now, the Israelite people are in slavery in Egypt. The end of chapter 2 says this. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. That's pretty powerful in and of itself. That in the middle of our suffering, we could cry out to the Lord, and he would hear. He would remember. He would see. He would know. That's that's powerful in and of itself. But then... Mercy happens here in verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppression. I know about their sufferings and I have come down to rescue them. That's mercy. Compelled into action. Another example of that would be from Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. A number of individuals walk by this man, beaten by robbers, had everything taken from him. He's laying, crumpled up on the side of the road. One person walks by, sees him, knows it, probably can intellectually understand what it would be like to be in that position, keeps walking. Another person comes by, same response. Then along comes an individual who sees, hears, knows, understands, and moves in order to alleviate the suffering. That's mercy. That act is merciful. It is no mercy at all to merely think sad thoughts about those who suffer. To be merciful means to act in order to alleviate another's suffering. Let me just... This is certainly not the main point this morning, but just very briefly, if you're someone who's placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're a follower of Jesus, saved by him, we are commanded to be merciful as we have been shown mercy. Which means that when we see or hear about the sufferings of other people, we should not just intellectually understand, we shouldn't, you know, compassion is good, sympathy is good, but we're to move toward them in mercy 
in the way that Jesus has moved toward us in mercy. What does that look like? What does that mean? Verses 14 and 15. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. We share flesh and blood, you and me. Me and Doug. Doug gets a cut, he would bleed. I know what that's like, because when I get a cut, I would bleed. Jesus knows what that's like. Jesus also shared in these. Thorns smashed down on his head, he knows what it's like to bleed. Nail pounded into his hand, he knows what it's like to bleed. Verse 17 says he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. Here's what's staggering. Hebrews 1.3 The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of God's nature. In a short, you know, concise window from Hebrews 1.3 to Hebrews 2.17, there's maybe not a better picture of what it means for Jesus to be truly God and truly man than those two statements. The radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, Hebrews 1.3, like us in every way. Hebrews 2.17. So where's, where's the mercy there? How do we see that? This section in Hebrews actually runs from Hebrews 2.10 down to 2.18. So I want to connect some things together. If you've got to flip over a page or just scan back up, look at verse 10. This is where this started. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering. The word there for entirely appropriate. Your translation might say it was fitting that God would, is prepo, that's the Greek word. That word's important. It's important because if God sees that something is entirely appropriate and God is righteous, if God sees that something is fitting and God is righteous, what does he need to do? He's got to act right? Because it would be unjust and unrighteous for God to see what is entirely fitting and then to just act as though it didn't matter. Okay? 2.17. Therefore, he had to be like. The word there is ophelo. It means he was obligated. Obligated by what? His character. He saw that it was fitting He's righteous and he's just and he's holy and he's merciful and therefore he was obligated to be like us in every way. If God sees something that's fitting, his righteousness demands that he acts accordingly. Jesus is like us in every way, not only because of our specialness as the pinnacle of creation and his love for us, but also because his very character demanded us, demanded it. The very character of God demanded that it be so. It was entirely fitting that in order to save us, Jesus suffered, Hebrews 2.10. It was fitting that he die, and he couldn't die without first being human. If he was to suffer in order to save us by his mercy, then he was obligated to be like us in every way. Let me press this one more step. As I was studying this book 
like six months ago or so in preparation for us to lay this series out and to begin to walk through it. There was a verse in this passage that really jumped out at me. That verse is verse 11, particularly the end of it. This is talking about Jesus bringing sons and daughters to glory. It's entirely appropriate that he be made perfect through suffering. That the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one father. And then this statement, that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Consider that. I, won't, I don't know all your struggles, so we'll just, just talk about me for a second. All my sin, all my brokenness that I know all too well, all of my own pride, all of my own desire for people's approval, all of my own fear and anxiety that often leads me to act in ways that are not full of faith, but instead are motivated by fear, all of that, Jesus not ashamed to call me his brother. That's incredible. Jesus is not seated at the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 1.3, and saying, ah, and I brought this one, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and saying, look at him! Put you there. He's not ashamed. He's like you in every way sees all the things that you struggle with, yet never having sinned himself, and says, oh yeah, I remember that. I understand that. I felt that. I know what that's like. It was fitting for him to be like his brothers and sisters in order that he might suffer and die and bring them to glory along with him. And he's not ashamed of it. Not one bit. And you can bank on the fact that he is never ashamed of something that his character demands that he does. In mercy, he moved toward humanity, like us in every way, in order that he might suffer and die and bring us to glory. And he's not one bit ashamed of it for one single person that he brings with him. Verse 16, he's not doing that for the angels. It's clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. He's superior to the angels. We saw that in chapter 1. He's made a little lower than the angels. We saw that in the middle of chapter 2. But he's not reaching out to help them. Mercy does not compel Jesus to become like an angel in order to save the ones that have fallen. Mercy compels Jesus to move toward humanity, to suffer and die, in order to do something. In order to destroy the one holding the power of death. In order to free those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. And so Jesus becomes like us in every way. He's got a body that grows from baby to child to teenager to adult. A body that gets tired and hungry and thirsty. We see him sleeping in the hole of a ship, sitting down beside a well, crying out that he thirsts. He's got a mind. One that we're told grows in knowledge and wisdom. 
All the information in all of the universe wasn't downloaded into his human mind while he was in the womb. I mean, think about your toddler. Your three-year-old that asks why a thousand times a day. Jesus did that to Joseph. Why is the grass green? Why is that dirt brown? Why is the sky blue? Jesus had to learn the scriptures. Jesus felt emotions, the full range of human emotions, anger, joy, sorrow, grief, and yet he never sinned one time in them. He experienced all the highs and all the lows of normal human life, like us in every way. R. Kent Hughes says this, May we reverently understand that the incarnation meant that Christ progressively smelled like a child, a boy, and a man. Moms of boys, you know what that means. He thought like a child before he thought like a man. He knew the same range of human emotions as we did as he grew to maturity. He's like us in every way. The nature of Jesus is not fully God with the appearance of humanity. The nature of Jesus is not just human raised up to a higher level. He's truly God in every way. He's truly human in every way, but without sin. In him exists all the power of the sovereign God of the universe, creating, sustaining, and inheriting all things, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. And in him exists all the hindrances and difficulties that come with humanity. And he moves toward us in mercy. Not just kind thoughts about humans who are struggling. Not just sympathetic thoughts toward us in our suffering, but in action. He moves toward us and frees us, destroys the power of death, frees us from the fear of death. I was running one night uh, not too long ago. It was late, and so it was already dark. And I was just doing it like an out and back sort of route from my house, so whatever distance I was going, I went halfway out, turned around, and ran straight back the way I had come. And on my way out, I was running across Nashua just a little before Lewis and Clark. And it was totally dark, and there's no street lights on the side of the street where the sidewalk is. Uh, and as I'm approaching this one particular house, I, I can hear a dog barking. I can tell by the dark, or by the sound, that we're not dealing uh, with like a Yorkie here. But it's black, and I can't see it. But as I continue to run, and it's obviously headed toward me, I can see two eyes and bared teeth, and it's still barking. And I'm kind of trying to figure out where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do, and I, I can't jump down in the street because there's also a car coming toward me. And so uh, by the time I make a decision, I'm, I'm basically right up to where the dog is. And right as I've just resigned myself to the fact that I'm going to be eaten uh, right there in Liberty, Missouri, the chain reaches tight, full tightness and snaps the dog backwards. And I'm like, whew. I kind of stand there and collect myself. You know, my heart rate drops. I get calmed down. I continue running. And it's not until I'm about maybe 20 yards from the house on the way back that I realized, ah, I've got to run by the dog again. But then I remember he can't get to the sidewalk. I learned that last time. Bark a lot, growl a lot, run as fast as he wants, 
but he can't get to where I am. I'm free from whatever he could do to me. I'm free from even needing to be afraid that he could get to me and do something. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you have been set free from your sin by the work of Jesus Christ, the devil can do nothing to you. The worst thing that he wields is the power to ultimately and eternally send you into spiritual exile from God and you have been absolutely freed from that and from the fear of anything else that he might do. Free. Run along the sidewalk and giggle at the dog if you want because you have been set free. That is a rock-solid promise. And in mercy... Jesus did it for you. Like you in every way. Suffered, died, felt the pain of that suffering and the reality of that death and then walked out standing on the other side that you would be set free. That is incredible. He did that by his own death and it was fitting for that to be the case. We need not fear the worst thing that Satan has at his disposal. And I would go so far as to say we need not fear any of the lesser things and all of the brokenness that exists in this world because of Satan. He's a merciful liberator. We've been set free. He's also a faithful priest. 217 again. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Chapters 3 through 11 are going to really put some skin on what this whole high priest analogy means, and so we don't need to spend a ton of time on it right now. Let me just give you the three highlights that are coming later. A high priest had to be human. A high priest had to offer sacrifices, and a high priest would intercede for the people. That's, those three things are what are coming in the book of Hebrews. Jesus fulfilled those perfectly. He was faithful in those things. He bore perfection, humanity, like us in every way, without sin. He offered the perfect sacrifice, which was himself, no spot, no blemish, no defect, and now he intercedes on our behalf. Hebrews 1.3, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why did he do that? To make atonement for the sins of the people. That's the end of verse 17. Depending on what translation of the Bible you have, that verse reads pretty differently. We uh, use the CSB up here when we're teaching, but if you're holding an NIV, it says, so that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. It's very similar. If you're using a King James Version, it says, so that he might make reconciliation for the sins of the people. If you've got an ESV, it says that it was to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If you've got a New Living Translation, it says then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. The word in question there that gets translated all those different ways, atonement, take away, reconciliation, propitiation, is the word holoskomai. You go to the dictionary, a Greek dictionary, and you look up what that word means. It will tell you to conciliate or to propitiate. And it's one of those frustrating situations where you look up the definition of a word and then you've got to go look up the definition of another word in order to understand the first word. 
But the third offering there is to appease. That's what Jesus' death as faithful high priest has done. His suffering, his sacrifice has appeased the demands of God's righteousness and holiness while at the same time appeasing the demands of God's love and grace and mercy and he's done so without compromising either side. The textbook definition of propitiation is that God in himself has met the demands of his holiness in such a way that his righteousness and justice were not compromised and his love and grace were not negated. Why? Well, because it was fitting. It was appropriate for Jesus to do that. He was obligated by the nature of his character and he's done that mercifully. He's done it faithfully. He's done it in a way that's destroyed the power of death and Satan that's broken the chains of sin and he's done it in such a way that we can be made righteous before a holy God. That leads to verse 18. For... Because, so, since he himself has suffered when he, is tempted, when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus is a capable helper. If you're a note taker, maybe put the pencil down for the last seven or eight minutes here. This is what we need to feel. Don't, don't turn your brain off. But tune in your heart. Jesus suffered. His mercy led him to it because his character demanded it. He did it perfectly on our behalf and in so doing has appeased what our sin deserves. And so we often think about Jesus suffering and we think about the cross, and rightfully so. But Jesus suffered immeasurably before he was even nailed to that cross. He's God from all eternity. He takes on human flesh. He's bearing humanity. And now he's got a sniffle in his nose. He never experienced that before. What is, why is that happening? He's tired, thirsty, hungry. He's suffering in a way that from all of eternity he's never had to experience before. Just because he's bearing flesh and humanity. He suffered in resisting temptation. Look, we often suffer because of the consequences of our sin. Jesus resisted temptation itself to the point of suffering. I'll be the first one to admit, I've not ever resisted the temptation to sin to the point of suffering. My flesh caves long before I get to that point. Martin Luther says this, that Christ knows the full force of temptation in a manner that we who have not withstood it to the end cannot know. And he suffered in securing our salvation on the cross, but also before he was there in a trial where he was wrongly and falsely accused and sentenced, in a beating that put him within an inch of his life, his crown of thorns was shoved down on his head. Jesus suffered. And because of that, because of his mercy, he's able to help. 
He's able to help you. But before you'll receive that help, you need to feel the reality of your need and you need to feel the capability of Jesus. Until you do that, you can be fairly sure that nothing is ever going to change in your circumstances. You'll keep reaching out toward the things that haven't been able to help you up to this point and won't be able to help you in the future, whether it's substances, relationships, money, status, dumping yourself into your work, thinking that your own grind and your own hustle is going to be the thing that ultimately fixes your circumstances. None of those are capable helpers. They might be symptom soothers. They might numb you a little bit, but they're fixing nothing. And what we want when we think of Jesus as a helper is we want the immediate, miraculous fix to whatever problem exists in our lives. And he has the ability to do that immediately and miraculously. And when it's fitting... He's obligated to do it. And in our minds, every difficulty that we come into is the fitting situation under which the miraculous thing should happen. But sometimes Jesus' help looks different because he knows in all of his sovereign greatness that what's fitting is something different. Sometimes what's fitting is that Jesus helps us through the intentional long-term work of a counselor. And that's the means by which Jesus offers us the help that we need. Sometimes that help might look like joining some sort of group that provides accountability or tools for breaking free from the chains of sin, and that's where Jesus meets us and helps us. Sometimes Jesus' help looks like an Embracing a season of deep humbling in order to be freed from the chains of your own pride. And he knows it's fitting. He's obligated to do it. And so we want the miracle. We want it to be quick. We want it to be painless. We want it to be immediate. But sometimes Jesus looks at us and says, there are going to be tears and I will wipe them all away. You're going to limp. I'll be the crutches. It's going to be lonely. I'll be with you. The load is going to be heavy. But like Simon of Cyrene helped carry my cross, I'll help you carry yours. I'm merciful. I've broken the chains of death. I've destroyed the power of Satan. I'm faithful. I've satisfied the just demands of God's righteousness while extending the fullness of His grace and love, and I am capable. I'm able to help you when you're tempted to despair. I'm able to help you when you're tempted to walk away from the faith because the pain just seems too great and it feels like I'm being too slow. I'm able to help you when your own pride makes you think that you've got the solution to whatever problem is going on. And if you ever doubt it, look at the cross and see that I went straight through death and now I'm standing on the other side. The hands, feet, 
the head, the heart of Jesus, bear the scars of mercy and faithfulness such that we can look to Him and know that He's able to help. Go back to the swimming pool. I can't know what season of life every person in here over the course of the morning is experiencing. I can't know what all the different kinds of suffering look like. I can't know what all the hurts and what all the pains are, but I can know with certainty that there's one thing in all of the universe that is able to help no matter what the situation is, and that is Jesus. He's merciful. He wants to help. And He's faithful. He's capable. And the other thing that I can know is that the reality of every human heart is that we want to look to something else, something lesser. We're tempted to think that the answer lies in something that ultimately is just going to soothe symptoms when the reality is that the answer lies in the one who's broken the power of death made it so that we don't need to fear those things at all and is capable to help. Jesus is a merciful liberator, a faithful priest, and a capable helper. And when we start to despair or we're tempted to forget, we need only to look to the cross and see him there in our place, walking through death in order that we might live. When it feels like the water is going to come rushing into our lungs like death is lurking around the corner. When we start to think that we cannot breathe anymore, our one and only move should be to look to the cross and see the mercy and the faithfulness of the one who's able to help. Our hearts, even when it doesn't feel the best, need to move back to a place of proclaiming all hail King Jesus. As the words of this song say, there was a moment when the lights went out, when death proclaimed its victory, when it seemed like all was lost, but Jesus crossed eternity. The King of life moved toward us in mercy, was faithful in bearing our humanity and offering a sacrifice and now is capable to help us. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together. I just want to read these verses prayerfully. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For he himself has suffered when he was tempted. And he is able to help those who are tempted.
God, I pray that we would always reach out first and foremost to you as our capable, merciful helper. God, would we trust that in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our pain, God, that you see what is fitting and that you are doing exactly what is necessary in order to move toward us in mercy. God, we can trust that you will be faithful to do that and that when we cry out to you for help, Lord, that you are a merciful liberator and a capable helper. God, would we never doubt that? Would your spirit continually draw us to you and to you alone as we seek help, God, in our daily lives? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.